I want to read you a story. Many years ago, I built my first sukkah. It was almost a catastrophe, and it happened like this. My wife and I were newly married, had just settled into our new home. One morning, leaving the synagogue, a friend said, I'm just off to the local timber yard to buy wood to build a sukkah. Would you like to come with me? Delightedly, I said yes. We didn't have a car, and I had been wondering how to buy and transport the materials to make a sukkah. The offer was providential. We went back to his home to get the list of things he required. The contrast, though, between us could not have been greater. The friend was superbly organized. He had drawn up architectural plans for his temporary dwelling in the sukkah. It was to be a standalone structure with windows and a door. It was going to require considerable skill in carpentry. He had made a long and precise list of the materials he needed, and he was ready to begin. I was shamefaced. I had no idea how to make anything, let alone a sukkah. In school, I had always come in bottom of the class in woodworking. When it came to practicalities, changing a light bulb was about the limit of my ability. Humbled, I followed him into the car, hoping that some inspiration would come. In the timber yard, he rattled off his list of requirements and ended up with an impressive uh, array of beams and planks and hinges and screws, I settled for an impromptu list of a few sheets of plywood, some wooden supports, and a bag of nails. And we were off to our respective homes to begin the process of building. We hammered away. Before the festival began, we visited each other to see the results. His was a thing of beauty, a summer house in which anyone could have faced wandering in the wilderness with peace and tranquility. Mine was modest by any standards. I had joined the plywood to the beams to make three square walls, nailed them to one another, and rested them against the back wall of the house. It looked like a large packing case, and there was a hole for a door. The festival arrived, and as luck would have it, there was a storm on the second night. The wind howled and blew itself into a gale. In the synagogue the next morning, my friend walked in, sat dejected. His sukkah had blown down. What, he asked, happened to yours? It's still standing, I said, unbelievably. He could not believe it. His elaborate tabernacle had been overturned while my makeshift hut survived. I must come and see it, he said. I don't understand how any sukkah could have stayed after that storm. So we went to my home together to investigate the mystery. And soon we found the answer. Unlike his, our sukkah did not stand alone. It had three walls and the fourth we had rested against the house. And to stop it from complete collapse, I had joined one corner to the wall of the house with a single nail. And that was the nail which had held firm during the storm. My friend laughed and said, now I understand the meaning of Sukkot. You can plan and con construct the most sophisticated building, but it's not if it's not joined to something stable, one day the winds will come and blow it down. Alternatively, you can make an improvised shelter which looks frail and probably is, but if it is even joined at one point to something immovable, it will hold fast in the worst storm. 
That nail in the corner, he said, looking at it with a smile, I have never forgotten, is faith. That is a now famous story of Jonathan Sachs' first sukkah that he built. And it's a story that he wrote, it's called The Nail of Faith. But I came across it again the other day and it continues to be relevant because, you know, the truth is we live in very, very uncertain times. We probably could say we always have, but we really seem to right now. I mean, my goodness, can we even imagine that the word COVID would still be so relevant and would have caused the absolute destruction, lives lost even in our own family from COVID? And if, well, as if the world were in good shape before COVID, it's certainly gotten worse. Political division rages, identity, insanity over gender and sexuality, race relations. Dr. Seuss is a racist. Do you ever read the book, The Star-Bellied Sneetches? About the Sneetches, this guy came and set up a machine and the Sneetches would go through and he'd put a star on their stomach, but some didn't want the star and then they got judged for not having a star and then this smart businessman said, no, the cool people don't have stars. So all the people without stars now judge those with stars and it went back and forth and he kept running them through the machine, putting stars on, taking stars off and getting paid every time he did it. And it was all about judgment and, and, and hating those who are different than you. That was Dr. Seuss, the racist, who wrote that book. He's not a racist. It actually reminds me so much of what's going on right now. It makes me think of vaccines, which makes me think of freedom. I've been vaccinated, but I don't think the government gets to tell you if you can. My body, my choice, right? Afghanistan. In addition to leaving people and human beings there, I read this the other day. We left 3,000 Humvees, 33 Black Hawk helicopters, 7,000 machine guns, 20,000 grenades for starters, and we gave those to the Taliban, to our enemy. Something tells me we could see them again, God forbid. There's an opiate crisis. My firefighter friend, inspired, loves his job, told me, I'm at, my, I'm at my wit's end. I can't do it. We're going on overdose calls every day. I've lost all of my passion. Homelessness, anarchy in major cities, and the world outside the United States. I love the Chinese people, but the Chinese government I don't love. And Bill Maher, who is no angel, uh, very, 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 very foul-mouthed and liberal Jew, one of my own tribe, who I don't listen to a lot, wrote an amazing piece on what China is actually doing in the world. And you know what? No one really seems to be paying attention to the fact that China is buying up half of California and Europe and doing all kinds of things. So, no, I'm not a racist about the Chinese, but I don't want China to own everything in the world. They are a communist country. But the thing is, this is all happening around us. So to say we live in uncertain times is an understatement, actually. And I could continue to depress you thoroughly if you wanted to. 
but I won't because it's Sukkot. It's the season of rejoicing. Why did you start this message like that? Well, because the season of rejoicing starts with this. These two things, the nail of faith and the insecurity, the uncertainty of the world, perfectly are combined in the vision, the imagery of the sukkah in this season to help you move through and pass Sukkot, I hope, with a newfound faith in life. That's what it's about. Because with uncertainty comes a great opportunity. An opportunity to develop something that you've always needed and you will continue to need even more and more. It is called emunah. Emunah in Hebrew means faith. It means faith. It means trust. And to say the more uncertain things get, sometimes the harder this exercise of emunah gets. And that is exactly what that introduction has to do with Sukkot. Betzilah under the shadow of faith, that's the Zohar's description of the sukkah, that we, that we are covered by faith. And a wonderful quote, another one from Sachs, I have often argued, he says, that faith is not certainty. Faith is the courage to live with uncertainty. When we build our Sukkot, we are building a visual and memorable sign of our faith. Now, it's a weird way to tell a story, actually. I mean, you know, palm fronds and waving things and little lemons in your hand and building things with trees for a roof and they don't keep the rain out and living in a shanty and sleeping there. I mean, think about this. It's much more normal, isn't it, to eat chocolate eggs that came from a rabbit and bring evergreen trees into your house and sit around them to give gifts? Now, that's normal. But the strange thing is, we didn't make this up. God came up with this. And it's biblical. On the 15th day of the seventh month, when you gather in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the festival of the Lord for a seven-day period. The first day shall be a day of rest. The eighth shall be a rest day. Shall take for yourselves on the first day the fruit of the Hadar tree, date palm fronds, a branch of a braided tree, willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God with your fruit and your branches for seven days. You'll celebrate it as a festival to the Lord for seven days in the year. It's forever. It's an eternal statute throughout your generations that you celebrate in the seventh month. For seven day period, you shall live in booths. Every resident among the Israelites shall live in booths. Why? Why? That's weird. Why? The promise. In order that your generations should know that I had the children of Israel live in booths when I took them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. There's your answer. Does that make sense? Here are the twofold connections. In other words, when you do this, you'll remember the past and hopefully be grateful, first of all, that you didn't have to live in the wilderness in a sukkah for 40 years, but also to be grateful that God, even in the midst of all the uncertainty and challenge of the wilderness, God was with them, which in turn makes the second connection. You will be and can be certain of a future with God as well. 
He was faithful for them. He can be faithful, will be faithful if you allow them. He carried them through the wilderness. As a matter of fact, there's the little Sukkots they lived in, and then the rabbis in the Midrash speak of the cloud of glory that traveled with Israel. That was the big Sukkah that was over all of Israel. That was the big covering. God was with them. And the Sukkah like life, by all appearances, is pretty unstable. Demonstrated by the expert's sukkah in Rabbi Sack's story. We can construct it perfectly. We can map it out. We can blueprint it. We can superglue nuts and bolts and perfect nails, just like, we, just like what we want to do in life. We put our life compartmentalized perfectly together. And, and in the sukkah, every joint is perfect, a, a firm, architecturally designed foundation that will weather a storm, overlay that onto your life. We want to create and manage our perfect life, work hard to have all we want, to be healthy, to be happy, to be prosperous. And there's nothing wrong with that. You should pursue those things. But storms do come. Don't they? And wind and rain blowing through the sukkah is not exactly, that's not the best place to be during a, a, a weathering a storm. It's difficult. The sukkah is uncertain, hence the designation, under the shadow of faith. But the one who told us to build in it, who came up with these things we just read in the Bible, he is not uncertain. He is not uh, un unstable. He is believable. He is faithful. And so Sack's nail story, that is a picture of faith. And his sukkah tells a story, but so does the experts. You don't get to lay out your life perfectly. That's hard for me. I'm, I like to be in control. Shh. <laughs> Even when you've got all your ducks in a row and everything is built and structured perfectly, things fall apart. And it's not necessarily how good it looks on the outside. It's what it's anchored to. All of it. And man, you want to talk about a messianic lesson. Matthew 7, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and its collapse was great. Sounds like the expert sukkah. Got to be connected to something. I was talking with Taylor. My soon-to-be 21-year-old daughter who is asking questions, finding her way, doubting, Judaism, faith, doubt, challenges. Yes, the, the, the rabbi's perfect child, because all rabbi's kids are perfect, because the rabbi's perfect, right? <laughs> yeah, my kids is struggling like a lot, a lot of people struggle through their faith and asking questions. The kind of questions that we historically told kids, don't ask that question. And doggone it, you know what? Even if we tell them they can't ask those questions, that they shouldn't ask those questions, they're still asking those questions. And when you don't 
engage, when you don't answer the questions, when you don't even, even think about being willing to talk through them, that doesn't work very well. It's certainly not working very well anymore in this day and age. And so, you know what? No deep theological answer. We were on the way home from Yom Kippur. And Taylor was like, I don't get this. Like, I mean, I'm just, I'm just not really connected to this. And my first parental response is, what's the matter with you? You're the rabbi's kid. You're supposed to do all these things. You've got to love all these things. You have to. You have to be. You have to. And then all of a sudden, I think back to my life at 21. I took the one nail out and I threw it so far across the world you would never find that nail again. And I lived my life crazy, crazy. I wasn't asking questions about God. I didn't even think about God. And yet somehow in all of that, it was that desperation that ultimately brought me back to Yeshua. So I'm a believer that sometimes even the horribly bad journeys can bring us back. But you know, the uncertainty of life, let's be very honest here, folks. I still have questions. I still wrestle with questions. The things I stand up here and talk to you about, I'm wrestling through them myself. I don't have all the answers or a lot of the answers. I face moments of doubt. I question God sometimes about religion, about what we do, about why we do it. Are we doing the right things? And sometimes, you know what? I get really, really discouraged. But I have at least one nail. And I told Taylor, listen, baby. I've done it. I have done it without the nail. It is an incredibly lonely place to not be anchored, to not have at least that to hold on to. In all of life's weirdness and questions and uncertainties and problems and people telling you this is right and this is right and that's wrong and that's wrong, it's a really, really lonely place place to live without your sukkah and at least one nail. And as for me, you know, as I watch all my kids grow up and make choices and build families and become who they want to, want to be or going to be, it's very hard for me. It's very hard for me. Because, did I tell you I like to be in control? Shh. I want to build the sukkah of their life. I want to do it, and I'll do it right. I will put it together with all the joints. I'll draw the blueprint. I'll make sure it never falls down. And, you know, I can, I'll, let me do it. Let me control every aspect. You're my kids. I need to do that for you. But the truth is they have to build their own sukkah. As my parents sit in the room and smile, thinking back to who I was, at some point in my life. They have to build their own Sukkot. They have to build their own structure to weather life and to dwell in them in the various stages of their lives. But the prayer isn't that I get to build it for them. 
the prayer is that no matter what it looks like, no matter how crappy the thing is or whatever their life is like, they will at least have one nail. Did I at least give them that bit of knowledge about who God is? That's the prayer. To always have at least one nail of faith so that they're the other audience in Matthew 7. Not the ones who built on sand. Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his sukkah on the rock, we could say. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against the house and it did not fall for it had been founded on the rock by one nail maybe. I remember building in this Uh, just a few years ago, building with Annabelle, my baby, who's now a senior who will be leaving. I remember I remember building the sukkah. And she said, she said, I love this, Dad. And that was a nail. That was an anchor. And that is why we do what we do. And it seems weird. And it seems, you know, just inconvenient and it's weird. But the rejoicing of this season is the faith that God has plans, even in our apparent uncertainty. It's better to take refuge in the Lord, Psalm 118 says, during the Sukkot chanting. It's better to take refuge in the Lord, even if only one nail holds all of the uncertainty together. Dainu, it is enough. People will disappoint you. Your life can fall apart and be rebuilt and fall apart again and be rebuilt. People disappoint. We disappoint ourselves, but God does not. It doesn't look like we want it to look so often. And sometimes it's just the one nail that's holding you. I wouldn't trade any of this for anything because, you know, without being critical or judgmental, you can have the, you can have the evergreen tree and the chocolate eggs. I'm going to take the little bamboo shack that we build out there and sit in during Sukkot and look up at the stars and imagine these are the very same stars that Abraham looked at. These are the same stars that were shining when Israel was crossing through the sea. These are the same stars that Yeshua looked up at when he was praying. These are the same stars he looked at during this, his moment of doubt, his crying out that God would find a different way to do it. But no, I'll do, you, I'll do what you want. 
I can imagine that even Yeshua in the garden at that moment may have just had one nail. Yes, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I don't want to die, Father. I don't want to go through this. But I will, because I know you're faithful. So, that message, Yeshua, Yeshua brings this message to us, and we'll close right here. In this world, you will have trouble, but fear not. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. In this world, you will have uncertainty. You will have to live by faith. You will have to be in the wilderness sometimes. You will have to live in your booth. And it may not always be a big party. Though generally speaking, remember this quote I gave it to the other day. The trick is in what one emphasizes. We either make ourselves miserable or we make ourselves happy. The amount of work is the same. Life can be compared to the sukkah in many, many ways. It is uncertain. It is not, as much as I want it to be, under our control. We're vulnerable, in a sense. We can make the best plans, and those plans change in an instant sometimes. But that nail of faith, rain or shine, architectural masterpiece, or sukkah shanty, holds it together. Sukkot is a celebration which makes very little sense to people outside of our world. But, you know, palm branches and bamboo and eating meals and doing all that in the name of God, those are the mechanics, but it's so much more than that. It's what I'm telling you today. It's about recognizing that when you're in a crappy little hut in life, as long as it's anchored you're good, even when you don't feel it. There is tangible joy in the celebration that is coming soon. In the temporariness or uncertainty, there is a big worldwide party coming. You know what? Sukkot's message, the whole world, this is the only thing that the whole world is told, we're going to do this together. So until we do it together in Jerusalem, I pray that God will make this Sukkot for you and for your families. One of joy. One of enjoying even the uncertainty of life. And a reminder of the necessity of forever and always keeping at least one nail anchored to the King. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.